You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Doc G, and today we are breaking through with Brent Lacey on the Earn and Invest Podcast. I never thought of myself as a smart kid. In fact... When I was in second grade, I was diagnosed with a learning disability, and I had a huge amount of trouble learning how to read. Specifically, I had a lot of trouble with visual-spatial organization and relationships. So I didn't grow up with this idea of feeling that I was smart. Now, this didn't have anything to do with math. I mean, throw a math problem in front of my face, and I could do it better and faster than most anyone. But I quickly decided that there were certain things that I just wasn't good at. And even after I got over my learning disability and went to high school and college, I had certain limiting beliefs. And you can see this throughout my career. In fact, in college, I got a B plus in only one science class. In almost every other class, I got straight A's. That B plus was in physics lab. And the reason why was the actual physics class, I always did a great job because I could figure out all the math. But in physics lab, they wanted you to construct all these models and get the angles right. And the physical part, the visual part, I always had problems with. And this even carried into medical school and residency. I quickly found myself moving towards what I always thought were the more cognitive specialties. I was interested in internal medicine, but you couldn't convince me to go into surgery or radiology because I was too worried about the spatial organization. If I were to put this in healthcare terms, I had already decided on what my scope of practice was what I was good at, what was in my wheelhouse. But then as I got older, maybe it was just life pushed me in other directions. I built my own practice and realized that I could do medicine. I started creating and writing and blogging and podcasting. And it really opened me up to this idea that maybe, just maybe, I had these huge limiting beliefs about who I am and what I'm good at. And that maybe what I believed my potential was wasn't really true. My potential was, or better yet, is limitless. Brent Lacey is a gastroenterologist, financial coach, 
and created the Scope of Practice platform where he helps doctors and dentists run their businesses and master personal finances. Brent, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for letting me uh, come on. I'm super excited here. We are not just doctors. We are also podcasters and bloggers. I feel like we have a lot in common. Yeah, it's funny. I wouldn't have been able to say that up until about a year ago when I started. But yeah, I'm starting to feel like definitely joining the fold. It's been a lot of fun working this last year. I want to talk a little bit about your brand, the scope of practice. Now, you're a gastroenterologist, so I get the scope part. But tell me how you came up with this brand and this platform. Where did scope of practice come from? Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's lots of folks out there in the physician personal finance space. I mean, obviously yours <laughs> and, you know, uh, probably about, I don't know, 80 or a hundred folks that are blogging and maybe another 15 of us that are podcasting or something. But when I was starting to get into this a little bit, I started thinking, well, how's a way that I can offer something new or something different. And one of the things that I've been observing just over the course of my time since I got out of uh, residency and fellowship was that, you know, when we come out of training, we are really excellent physicians, right? We're great at our craft. We know how to take care of patients and we're pretty lousy at basically everything else to do with the business of medicine. I mean, I don't know about you, but I wasn't trained in in medical school or, or or you know residency or fellowship on how to run a team or how to hire and fire, or how to do your business taxes, or how to structure your clinic flow to maximize efficiency, or how to think about expanding to other sources of of income. And nobody trained us on personal finances either. So that was an area that not enough people were speaking into, and I thought that was something that I could do to bring some new value into the world. I really relate to this idea of the limits to our medical education. I always tell the story that when I was at medical school at Northwestern, there was this opportunity to do a combined MD-MBA program, and my wife you know, was really pushing me to do it. And I kept on telling her, why ever would I want to do an extra year of business school? I'm going to be a doctor. I don't need to know about business. And part of that was that I always knew from being a little kid that my biggest aspiration and goal in life was to be the best doctor I could be. Were you the same way? Did you grow up with this idea that you were going to become a doctor and that was your profession? Actually, it's, it's funny. I'm laughing that no, absolutely not. So my father's a physician actually. And you know, he and I have been best friends since I was about nine. And so, I mean, I love him to death, but he's very well-respected member of the community and just sort of always been a leader. And so every time that I was in a room with him, you know, we kind of look alike. And so anytime I was in a room with him when I was a kid, everybody would ask me, are you going to be a doctor like your dad? And I just got so fed up with the question. I mean, again, I love dad and I respect him and I love the medical profession. And it's like, you know what, I'm going to be my own person. I need to do my own thing. So by the time I graduated high school, I only had ruled out definitively two careers. I knew for sure that I didn't want to be a lawyer because dad would disown me. And I knew for sure that I didn't want to be a doctor because I wanted to do my own thing. Those are the only two things I had definitely absolutely ruled out. And so I went into college actually as a, as a business major. And then in the spring of my freshman year of college, I got a call from dad. He was going to go on the medical missions trip from University of Texas Southwestern over to Mexico with the Christian Medical Association to do their annual mission trip. And they needed some Spanish translators and I speak Spanish. So I said, yeah, well, let me go with you and I'll, uh, I'll be one of your translators. And that week, I really felt God calling me to a career in medicine. And 
again, I had absolutely run away from that for more than a decade and then really felt like that's the direction I was being called. And so about two weeks later, I changed my major to pre-med and crammed the entire pre-med curriculum into three years instead of four, which I don't recommend to people. (laughs) (laughs) And then went off to med school and the rest is history. That makes me think of two things, your answer. Let's start with the first. So do you think it would have been business you would have went into if it wasn't medicine? Was that the thing that was calling you up to that point? I think so. I think part of that was was just based on when I was in uh, middle school and high school, I, I've always been in uh, uh, leadership roles. You know, I was in the Boy Scouts for a long time and did some leadership in the like student government, that kind of thing. And really got really got interested in the idea of business and, and you know either running a business or or being part of a large organization and being able to help a lot of people and so I had gone in as a plan to either be a marketing major or a or a management major but but chiefly thinking about marketing because I had done a little bit of broadcasting when I was in high school and I, and I enjoyed that kind of thing and I've always been a writer so I enjoyed that so I thought that would be a natural fit. And the armed forces, I know that you're in the armed forces currently. Was that a major part of your career trajectory? Did that come later? Okay. So that was another one that was a big shocker. No. So I actually went to Texas A&M University, which has the largest ROTC program outside of the academies. Corps cadets is 2,300 people or something, I think. And I came very close to doing the Corps and decided not to. So in college, I did not. And actually had you know, you probably got flyers for like the the health profession scholarship program and such, right? You probably got those. And you know, every time I would get those, I would throw them away. But then after college, I went to Yellowstone National Park by myself for a week to go and, and to pray and to meditate and just kind of think about what would a career in medicine look like? What kinds of things am I being called to do specifically? And really felt a very strong urging that God wanted me to be in the military, which nobody in the family, I mean, from my, my, both my grandfathers served in uh, the Marine Corps and the Navy during World War II, but nobody since then in my whole family has ever been in the military. So it was never really a serious consideration, but just really felt that calling. And so I applied for a medical school uh, scholarship through the Navy and got it. And so, yeah, I did that for 11 years after <laughs> 11 years after med school. The other part of your first answer, which is interesting to me, and you brought it up again, is this idea of spirituality and God calling you to do things. When I decided I wanted to be a doctor, I mostly wanted to do that because my father was a physician. So I was the exact opposite of you. And he died when I was eight years old. So it kind of stuck in me, this idea that I would follow in his footsteps the whisperings of creativity and business and all of that didn't percolate into my life till later. For you, it sounds like spirituality helped, in a sense, define your scope of practice. When I say that, I'm meaning in that broad sense of what interested you and what you thought you were made to do. Yeah, well, as an evangelical Christian, you know, that's been the guiding framework for my life ever since I was a child. In any in any major decision like that, I'm I'm always very quick to seek guidance and you know really ask, well, what does God really want from me and my life and my career? Because that's just very very important to me. And I've never been disappointed. Every at every stage that I feel like just at a crossroads where there's a couple of great decisions or or a couple of challenging decisions, 
I always feel like I'm able to get clarity by seeking that guidance. And so that's always been a major part of my life and was actually a big part of what drove me into doing what I do now with the scope of practice. So that actually started as a ministry at my church. You know, if you're familiar, you're probably familiar with uh, Dave Ramsey, Financial yep. Peace University. Yep. So I started teaching that. I started just helping with that class when I was uh, when I got out of fellowship at, just at my church, and started getting asked to actually teach it as the as the primary teacher. And then I got together with some other folks at the church, some buddies, and we said, you know, there's a lot of need here. There's a lot of people that are just hurting that just don't know what to do. It's like there's got to be more that we can do. So we actually expanded that and grew the ministry to be to include some one-on-one coaching and some additional classes and things really started doing a lot of outreach and then started getting asked to do it at my hospital and do some basic talks on investing and how to use your retirement plans and things like that and then one day I'd been doing uh, like my fourth coaching session for the week and I was like, you know, I've been asking, answering all the same questions. I really should have a, a blog or something somewhere that I can just point people to and go, oh, just read this article. It'll explain everything. And then I thought, yeah, why don't I just have a blog for something, <laughs> something like that? <laughs> so that's what I decided I would, I, would, I would put that together. And so that's how the blog was born. And then started doing some podcast interviews with folks just to promote the site a little bit and found that I really enjoyed it and kind of had a knack for it. So that's how the podcast was born. So it's been kind of a sort of a constant evolution. I see an interesting dichotomy here as you talk about spirituality. It sounds like a belief in God and spirituality opened you up to new experiences and learning new things. And I feel like we sometimes do the exact opposite in medicine. We are super specializers, right? We specialize first in health. And then as we go through medical school and residency, we tend to get more and more specialized. Is medical education lacking? Is it teaching us that we can close our eyes to all these important issues like the business of running a practice and putting us in a cubbyhole where medical knowledge is the most key important aspect of what we're supposed to get out of education? Oh, that's a really great question. I would say that the answer is yes, but I would say a qualified yes. And so I do think that there are things that we should be or at least could be learning in medical school and in training that we're not. So chief among them being personal finances. And I think to a certain extent, yes, the business of running a, running a practice, at least half of the people out there are in an employed physician state. But I mean, that means half of them are not. So you leave training and you're expected to be a leader in a business in many cases. And so I feel like that's important. Now, that said, the amount of medical knowledge is doubling about every five years, and they're not expanding the number of years that we're in med school. If anything, they're shrinking it. You know, basic science years are going down to 18 months in a lot of places. So trying to cram a whole bunch of extra stuff into that curriculum is just going to be challenging. But I, I do think that we are missing an opportunity in, in medical schools as a general rule. Now, there are some places that, that people can still get that. So, you know, podcasts like yours or podcasts like mine, people can still get that information. So I think that we're, we're finding new avenues to be able to provide that for folks. And some people like uh, Jason Mizell at University of Arkansas and, you know, Jimmy Turner at Wake Forest are doing some some more dedicated curriculums, which is great. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, to be perfectly honest, if there's any you know, med school deans out there listening to this, if you guys want to create a bunch of medical curricula and then just standardize it across all of medicine and put all of us out of a job, that would be fine with me. Because <laughs> if everybody's getting this information and there's just no longer a need for, for us to be out here on these podcasts, then okay. you know. But So I do think that there's an opportunity there we're just not taking full advantage of. 
And I would mention that we're talking about doctors and dentists, but really this conversation broadens to professionals in general. So you could be talking about lawyers or accountants or businessmen too. There's this idea sometimes that diffusion of purpose can be a bad thing. And you started getting interested in personal finance. Were there any people in your life or even that own inner voice that said, maybe I shouldn't spend my time doing this because I really need to be putting all of my thought process into becoming a good doctor? Like, I don't have the mental space and time to take this detour. Oh, that's a, that's a fabulous question. I would say that it's a little bit different depending on the stage that you're talking about. So when I was in high school, I was blessed that my parents spent a, a lot of time really deliberately teaching me and my brother and sister how to manage our finances effectively. So I, I had a checking account when I was in high school. I mean, I was required to budget. I mean, I, I had to learn. I read. I had read dozens of finance books by the time I got to college, and that was all deliberately taught by my parents. And I was thankfully smart enough to listen at least a little. And I, and I know not everybody is, is blessed with that. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to start the, uh, the side in the podcast, but, but I will say that it depends on the stage of training. So when I got to medical school, I already knew a lot of that stuff. And so I knew I needed to spend most of my time being a good doctor. So this is one thing that I do think, I do think physicians sometimes fall into a trap where they want to get good at so many things and so they, they miss whatever is the most important thing at any given stage. Have you seen the Jason Bourne movies, for example? Yep. And, so read, Jason, the book, and read the books. Oh, very good. Okay. So if Jason Bourne is trying to escape from or is trying to find out his identity, but he also wants to run a marathon and he also wants to open a bakery, well, that's, he's diffusing his, his roles too much. But, and I, I think if, if he was doing all that stuff and neglecting his primary focus of figuring out what his purpose is, then yeah, he'd be missing the boat. So I think you can do a little bit of all of it, but you just have to keep your eyes on the prize. So for example, I strongly recommend to folks when they're in medical school, spend all of your time being focused on getting good at your craft because as soon as you get out of training, no one's there to teach you anymore. So if you get out of training and you're not good as a physician, it's not going to matter what else you're good at because no one's going to take you seriously as a physician. And that's just not okay. Especially when it comes to how we take care of our patients. If you're below average at being able to take care of your patients because you spent all your time, you know, doing a podcast in medical school and residency, and that made it impossible for you to actually do the job of learning the medicine, then that's a missed opportunity on your part. Now, if you're able to do all those things, then great. But I think it's important for us to remember what our primary goal is at any stage and then anything else that we can do above that, then we add it in as an extra. As I listened to your answer, I realized that one of my chief mistakes is that I got so comfortable with the medicine aspect that I decided that everything outside of that was out of my wheelhouse. And so I developed these limiting beliefs about my abilities. So it's definitely important that if you do for instance, while in medical school and residency, focus 100% on medicine, you don't allow that to make you stay away from learning about those other things once you get out. Because just because you've put all this time and training and effort into being a physician, it doesn't mean it's the only thing you're good at. Or that it's the only thing that you can get good at, right? So there's going to be things that you're not good at, but that you would like to be good at. I mean, a year ago, I didn't know anything about 
how to run a podcast. I mean, I had to learn all this stuff, but the information's out there. If somebody wants to move from being a full-time employed physician and they want to go open up their own shop, there's people out there that can help. There's information out there. So there's, you talked about the limiting beliefs earlier. I mean, I think one of the limiting beliefs is we can't get good at something. I'll tell you what, if you got through med school, you can do anything, (laughs) right? I think that that's generally true. So I, I think we do need to pay attention to those beliefs and, and recognize them and then call them out to ourselves when we, when we hear that. When we start to say the words, I can't, our immediate knee-jerk reaction next needs to be, okay, why did I just say that? And is it really true? You and I think both had the benefit of also having a good financial modeling. You talked about your parents and how they brought you into this finance world you mentioned your father is slash was a physician. I thought doctors were bad personal finance business people. So it sounds like he was a pretty good role model for you. He was and mom too. So he was a math major in, in college. I think he's the only one ever. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I never meet math majors unless they're engineers maybe. But yeah, so he was a, he was a math major. And you know, here's the thing that's, here's the thing about this stuff. I mean, none of this stuff is, is hard. I mean, you've been doing this for, for years too. I mean, I mean, everything that we do, it's sixth grade math. So none of it's hard. It's just a matter of, of getting it done. And, you know, one of the things that I always tell folks when I'm coaching them is that 80% of your personal finances is the choices that you make and the behaviors that, that you allow yourself to have surrounding your finances, you know, so you can get, you can figure out expense ratios and Roth versus traditional 401ks and do all that stuff till the cows come home. And if you're not paying attention to what you're spending your money on, none of it really matters. So, I mean, anyone can get good at it, but I think it's a, I think it's a matter of just deciding to knuckle down and just do it. As a primary care physician, I used to use the same advice to people when they came into my office and said, well, how do I be healthy? And I, it was almost like finances, right? There are a few cardinal rules. And if you pay attention to those, everything else becomes much easier. And I think finances are the same. What people trip on, both in finances and in health, often is mindset. It's what I tripped on before I opened myself up to all these new experiences. And I think when it comes to taking care of someone's financial house, making sure that their own finances are in order, a lot of what stops them is this idea that, they, that it's not easy, this idea that it's difficult. Yeah. And anything that you aren't familiar with is going to be difficult at first. This is not nearly as difficult as I think people make it out to be. One of the things that I think is helpful at propelling people into a place where they start to get good at it is a sudden requirement that they have to. So for example, someone gets married or someone has a kid and all of a sudden they're like, okay, it really, really matters now that i be good at this. Or, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's be, it's after a series of mistakes and they look up and they go, oh my gosh, I financed a half a million dollar house and I have $600,000 in student loan debt and I'm a million and a half dollars in debt. What am I going to do with this? I'm drowning. Right. And so So sometimes it's get good at it because you have to, and sometimes you get good at it because you recognize the need. And so I I hope that there's more and more people out there that are starting to look at or trying to find podcasts like, you know, yours or or like mine and and start to go, okay, I, I should learn about this stuff. Let me listen to this on my commute and maybe I can pick something up and then start to realize maybe this isn't as hard as it needs to be. Brett, I want to transition a little bit to your work as a career and financial coach. You had mentioned before that you 
did training through Ramsey Solutions and did a master of financial coaching there. Tell me a little bit of how you got involved in that and what was involved. Yeah, so that was that was a lot of fun. So that was part of the financial discipleship ministry that I I started at our church. So I got three other guys. We all went up to Nashville for their week-long course. And it's all online now, but at the time, at least it was in person. And so we had four days of learning some psychology of investing and personal finance, and then learning some ways that people come in with uh, financial problems and sort of how to address them. And it was amazing. We really spent probably 80% of our time talking about how do we communicate? How do we educate people? How do we get people to understand what their behaviors are, you know, how to construct a budget, things like that. And very little of the time was spent on actual, like the mechanics of investing, for example, because here's the thing, when you look at all the stuff that people come in with, I mean, I almost always get the same 10 or 15 questions and they're all super simple. I mean, people are, people who are looking for financial coaching by and large need something simple. It's, I've got horrible student loan debt. How do I fix that? I don't know what my 401k is doing. How do I figure out if I'm invested in the right stuff? I feel like I'm always running paycheck to paycheck. How do I fix that? I mean, it's, it's really simple stuff. And so we also had a lot of some one-on-one things where we got to, you know, pretend to be in financial stress. And so we would, we would do some one-on-one fake coaching uh, with each other just to kind of practice it a little bit. And so it was an incredibly, incredibly valuable experience, but I think it was helpful that I had already kind of been doing that a little bit over the preceding year or two. And I had a little bit of experience built up because I think it made that, that training a lot more, uh, a lot more high impact for me. You mentioned those 10 or 15 questions that everyone comes in with when it comes to doctors and dentists, is it student loan debt that really is the number one issue? I would say that's probably the number one issue is, yeah, it's going to be student loan debt probably number two is going to be sort of debt more generally. And the number three is going to be as a general concept planning for retirement, you know, so how do we do your 401k versus an IRA? What's a Roth versus traditional, you know, what do I invest in things like that? Now the Ramsey solutions training is obviously not doctor specific. How much of your time in the past and currently were you coaching medical versus non-medical people? So I, I would say that prior to prior to starting the blog, I would say it was probably eighty percent, ninety percent non medical. And since starting the blog, it's probably flipped. You know, I still teach it at my church, but I get a lot of people that are coming who are in the medical space. It's probably more like eighty twenty medical. And now, tell me the differences. I mean, are these this type of clientele different, or does it feel pretty much the same? Yeah, I love this question because what I what I always tell people is that doctors do the exact same stuff that people who make less money make. What I like to say is that we as physicians, we do the same kind of dumb, just with more zeros on the end. <laughs> I could see that. Would you consider yourself a financial coach or a career coach? And how different are those two things? My first love is financial coaching and since starting the blog, I've definitely branched out more into business and career coaching. And I would say that the the primary difference is that with the at least career and business coaching, it's more the finance is an aspect of it, but it's not the primary focus. So for example, you know, I've had calls with folks where they they've gotten several like several job offers out of fellowship and they're trying to decide, well, how do I make this decision? Or folks that are trying to figure out how to apply for a job and they don't know how to write a good 
resume or it's someone who's in practice and they're, how do I structure the flow of my clinic so that I, I get more revenue or how do I, how do I hire the right people? I'm constantly losing people or I'm constantly having to fire people because they're just bad. So how do I, how do I fix that with my hiring process? Stuff like that. And money plays into that, but I think it's a smaller aspect. And how have you personally integrated this, so to speak, non-medical work into your medical career? Are you finding that you are doing less clinical work as time goes on and more financial work and more career coaching? No, I'm doing exactly the same amount of clinical stuff and just less, you know, TV and free time. (laughs) (laughs) I would say is the main thing. So I'm still a full-time gastroenterologist and and I love it, you know, and I know lots of folks that have gone either part-time or or have just retired from medicine completely and, you know, good for them. That's totally fine. I'm just not ready to hang up my stethoscope quite yet. Um, Still, still loving it. Still loving it. We started the conversation about your dad and what kind of business person he was. But, you know, there's a rumor that doctors and dentists are poor business people. Have you found this in your coaching career? Well, I think I think people as a general rule are are poor business people until they just decide that they're going to learn to be good. I mean, I think that this is true of engineers. I think it's true of lawyers that until you've kind of gone through it, you don't know what you don't know. So when I was in college, for example, so I mentioned I was at Texas A&M and the student center, the student union there is the largest student run student union in the country. So we had 1800 students that were part of that. And part of the program for that, in addition to all the different programming committees and all the different, you know, cultural committees and things that we had for producing programs for the, for the university, there was also a, a sort of leadership laboratory. So it was, it was a, it was run by students and staff working side by side. And so I got heavily involved in that. And during my senior year, I was actually the chief operating officer so it was me and the associate director running literally all of the programs for the entire student union. I mean, we had a budget of $6 million. We had 25 committees with 1,800 students. I mean, that's, that is a, that was like a, it was like a, an MBA right there, but it's all, but it was all experiential, right? I mean, none of it's theory. And that's the thing that's beautiful about, about business is that this stuff is learnable. Nobody is just suddenly granted the knowledge of business just by dint of having an MBA. I mean, it's not, there's no magic conferred there. It's just, did you learn what you need to learn? And I I just don't think that kind of thing is, is necessary. It's fine, but I think anybody can learn this stuff. It begs the question, not everyone has the experiences you had, and yet what you learned from those experiences can be very helpful to a healthcare professional. Should we be instituting some type of executive training into our medical education or maybe even some type of internship that takes you out of just the medical practice and teaches you a little bit more about business and running a practice? You know, I've never been asked that question before, but my gut feeling is no. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll, but I'll say that I think it would be something that would be valuable to offer as maybe an elective choice. So I don't think it's something that necessarily every physician needs. I think that there is value there, but there is a, a large minority, I would say, of physicians who really don't want to bother with the hassles and headaches of running a clinical practice. Because I'll tell you what, it is work and it is challenging. So I always like to say business is easy until people get involved. And it's, it is challenging to figure out how to hire someone 
how to hire well or how to know when it's time to fire somebody or, or when it's when you need to work on rehabbing folks or how to deal with interpersonal dynamics or how to fix office politics. I mean, like all that stuff is challenging and not everybody wants that to be part of their life. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So, so I don't think it's something that I would require. I would recommend a, a medical school necessarily require, but I think it would be really valuable to offer as an elective for the whatever fraction of people who really see that as, as wanting to make that part of their practice. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. On the Scope of Practice podcast, I believe episode one, you had my good friend Leif Dalina on, the physician on fire. And you mentioned Jason Mizell and Jimmy Turner earlier in this discussion. How much a role has personal finance affected the practice of medicine today? I mean, I imagine 10, 15 years ago, you didn't have these well-known figures in medicine talking about finances. Oh, I think it has affected it in a colossal way. The student loan debt you know, crisis is just tragic. And I'm not someone who thinks that all student loan debt should be forgiven. I, I think that we we owe it to society to pay back our debts. And whether that's through PSLF or just paying off our debts, I think that's fine. But there is a reality that people are starting way behind the eight ball. I mean, the average amount of medical school debt is $250,000 now. I mean, and that includes a lot of people like me who went through the military and whose student loan debt burden was zero. Now, we had student loans for my wife, but she's a physician as well. But there's lots of zeros averaged in there. So I know lots of people that have had 300, 400,000 plus. And yeah, that, that definitely plays a role. I mean, because if you're going to do that and you want to be, you know, now you're actually having to make a decision. Do I do something that maybe I'm not passionate about as much, but I feel like I have to, to make the money that I need to make, or should I just 
do the thing that I'm passionate about and just live with the fact that I'm going to have to live a more Spartan lifestyle for the next 12 years. And that's a, that's a tough challenge for people to hit. I mean, that's a, that's a major crossroads. So I, I think that that's a, a negative thing that has happened over time. Another thing I think is that it really has changed the types of specialties that people want to go into. I mean, you know, you probably know this from being a primary care doc. I mean, the, the number of people going into primary care has been shrinking year upon year for a long time now. And I see a lot of people wanting to go into things like pulmonary critical care or emergency medicine or radiology where they do, where they tend to do a lot of shift work. And so you can kind of go home at the end of the day and you're not, you're not doing other stuff. I mean, like for me, I, I have clinic and procedures all day and then I'm on call. And right now as a solo, right now I'm a solo practitioner. I'll be joining a group this summer, but I mean, it's me 24 seven right now. And not everybody wants that. And I I do think money plays a role in that. And frankly, I think it should, but I, I think that if we can learn to make some simple choices, like decide that, okay, we're going to live within our means, regardless of what our income is, we're going to decide that debt is important enough to get rid of in our lives that we're just going to focus on it, then I think that regardless of what income level we're at, that we can live a very fulfilled life and have an excellent career. Let's turn that on its head a little bit. There's a concern that as physicians know more and more about personal finance, that there may be an exodus out of the field. People deciding that the price is just not worth it or the cost is just not worth what it entails. And as they get their finances in order, they'll retire early or transition to more administrative roles. Are we at risk of losing our physician population, our clinical population? You know, I got to tell you, I don't think so. And I think the reason for that is that at least right now, there is still a relatively small percentage of people that are highly focused on this stuff. This is just the reality. I see lots and lots of people that are well into their 40s and 50s that are still dealing with student loan debt because they haven't sat down and figured this stuff out. So the number of people who are listening to podcasts like yours and mine and who are going online to blogs and learning about this stuff is actually a fairly small percentage. So so I don't think we're at high risk for that. Also, I think that we're going to find that as people get their finances in order, one of the things that I find for a lot of folks that I work with is that as they get their finances in order, their stress level goes way down and they start enjoying their practice more. And all of a sudden they, they remember what they love about. So when they're sitting about medicine, so when they're sitting with a patient and they're talking to them about their diabetes, they're not thinking about their student loans anymore. They can just focus on enjoying the, the joy of medicine again. And so that's one of the things that financial independence really gives people is the feeling that, hey, I can just go and love what I do and I don't have to worry about making a decision based on finances. So we're talking about physicians as well as other professionals broadening their scope of practice. And one way people are doing that is they're moving towards administration or business. I'm sure you've seen that graph that all physicians have seen that show the rise in the number of administrators versus the rise in the number of physicians. Are there any deleterious effects? I mean, as we look at medicine as a business, It worries some that will be taking money out of the clinician's pockets and using it to fund more aggressive and maybe less beneficial activities for society. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword because as as healthcare becomes increasingly complex and as the demand for high-quality, low-cost care increases, that 
almost necessarily requires a certain level of regulation to ensure things. You know, so for folks like you who are really conscientious and really, you know, spend a lot of time focusing on doing a good job, that's fine. But there are plenty of people in our in our practices, you know, that that you know that in your town or I know in my town that I know that they're just not very good and I'm never going to refer to them. And it's those people that we have to guard against, right? And so that necessitates a certain level of bureaucracy in order to be able to prevent harm from patient harm from coming to patients on a grand scale. Now, are there deleterious effects to that? Sure. And I think one of the biggest ones is the commoditization of medicine. So the idea that all physicians are the same or that all healthcare delivery is equivalent. I'll give you an example. So if I want to go get an oil change for my car, right? Okay. So I drive a 10 year old Toyota. All right. If I want to go get an oil change for my car, I can do it myself or I can take it to uh, the mechanic Joe down the street or I can take it to a Toyota dealership and it's going to be about the same, right? But if I have a Tesla, which I don't, but, and good for you if you have a Tesla, no problem. But you know, if you have a Tesla, that's going to be much more complex and I'm not going to be able to help you out with that. So there are, there are certain levels of, of care that can be provided by different physicians or that are, you know, a level of conscientiousness perhaps that, that go into certain levels of care that I think we, I think we lose that when we start to think of all physicians as being the same, when you and I know that that simply isn't true. And I think that that is a, a very ugly and, and nasty thing that's happening. And I, I do see that as a, as a significantly deleterious effect. One of the antidotes I think for that is that, and this is something that I try to coach people on and encourage people on. And this is something that I've done several podcast episodes on is the importance of physicians engaging in leadership opportunities through their practice. And so getting on committees in the hospitals or seeking some of these executive medicine positions and things like that. And the truth is, if you look at the statistics as a general rule nationwide, hospitals that are run by physicians are safer. They have better patient satisfaction scores. And by and large, they're more profitable because we know what it takes to take care of our patients. We do it better than people who have never done this before. So I think that part of what we need to be doing as physicians is calling out bad behavior when we see it, both in our, in our own medical colleagues, as well as from administrators that don't know what the heck they're doing. And I do see more and more of that happening and social media has been really helpful for that. I also think that one of the best ways that we can fix the system is to participate in it. Yeah, Brent, one of the things I love about the Scope of Practice platform is this idea of building a clinician administrator. And like you, I feel like that's going to be our best way of moving forward in healthcare is that the people running both the business and the administrative side of medicine also have to be clinicians who are in the trenches at least part of the time practicing and know what's going on from moment to moment. So I love that about what you're teaching because what we really need is a army of clinicians who also understand how the business and administration of healthcare work. 100%. And you've heard the maximum, I'm sure, that those who can't do teach. And we, we all know that that's not true, right? So the, you know, the, the, guy, the, the best basketball coaches are often ones that have been players themselves. And so there is, there is something really valuable about having been a practitioner in the craft for which you are now a leader. And so I think as physicians, we are uniquely positioned to really take control of the, the influence of the healthcare space, but it just means we got to get up and do it. 
So I want to turn to your scope of practice platform. Tell me what your overall goals were when you started and how they've changed in the last year and a half. Yeah, so I guess it started as a as just a way to get some thoughts down on paper and provide some some content for folks that were looking for personal financial management ideas as well as start speaking into the physician leadership and business management space. As I started to kind of you know, reach out to folks and realize that there's just a lot of interest here, a lot of big need and realize, okay, this could actually be something that provides a lot of value to a lot of folks. So, you know, I went and got someone to design the website for me and actually make it, because I tried doing it myself and it was terrible, so bad. So outsource that one. And then, you know, just started writing and writing and I've written, I don't know, I've written 200,000 words in the last year and then decided to put the the podcast together, which has been just a lot of fun. I mean, I love being able to sit and have a long form conversation like this with folks. I mean, you can just get, you just get so much value out of that. So it's, that's, that's what the progression has been for the last year. And it's been a lot of fun. I found as a longtime writer that there is something magical about podcasting, something about hearing people's voices, their pauses, the way they say things that adds a whole new level of texture that it's hard to get in writing. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a hundred percent true. There's just something about the, the ping pong of talking to someone and then you, they ask a question in a way that maybe you've never quite thought about it. And you're like, Oh yeah, that's a great question. Let me think about that. Those are definitely magical moments. So let's look into your future. Scope of practice builds. The podcast becomes more and more popular. It's taking up more of your time. Would you consider pulling back on your clinical practice? Wow. It's hard to imagine right now just because I'm, I'm just loving what I'm doing. And I, I still, my first love is being able to go in, in, into the clinic and see patients and, and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, I guess never say never, but now I kind of imagine myself as a full-time clinician moving forward. We in our community talk a lot about the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. Certainly, it sounds like the retire early is not big in your plans, although the financial independence is. Yeah, I, I think of myself as FIRO, so uh, financial independence, retire optional. <laughs> but yeah, for sure, the financial independence. I think that, and I think that's for everybody. Because the thing I always tell people is that, is that financial independence gives you choices, gives you autonomy. So if you are enslaved to six figures of student loan debt for 10 years, then you're stuck with every decision you make about your career being impacted in a major way by the financial aspect of it. So yeah, I think that that's for everybody. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. Definitely. If you're interested in financial security right now, during this time where we're in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic, and we're looking at possibly a longer term recession, having a steady flow of income does not hurt, especially if you enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. And I think anybody can do that. And some people do it through real estate investing. Some people do it through starting an online business or an actual business. Some people do it through some of these side hustles, like, you know, medical expert work or chart review or things like that. But I think one of the things that we've learned from the COVID shutdown is that financial security, even for physicians is an illusion, right? I mean, sure. You know, people that have filed for unemployment and I certainly know hospitals that have gone under and entire practices that have had to fire half their staff. It's amazing in my lifetime. I never thought I would see physicians filing for unemployment benefits. And, and I think getting to a place where we have a more diversified stream of income, I think is going to be something that people need to seriously consider going forward. 
I laugh as you say that because when I finish up with you recording this podcast, I have a short video session for a public speech I'm giving for a medical conference, and then I have to run over to one of my condos to show it because I have one of my tenants leaving. So what you're talking about there is actually the life that a lot of us physicians are leading, even though I would look at my clinical trajectory and say that it is on the downswing. I still practice hospice medicine, but have all these other diversified forms of not only income, but also activities to keep me busy, engaged, and growing, as it sounds like you are helping people do the exact same thing. So let's end this all up by asking you what is up next in your life, and if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you? Yeah. So I, th- I think the next thing is just spreading the message to folks that personal financial mastery and the, the successful running of a clinical business is within your grasp. And just to you know keep providing that value and that content to as many people as I can. I've had some people ask me about creating online courses and started to do some speaking events and things. So I, I think going to be some opportunities to, to keep spreading that message to folks. And yeah, if people want to come find me, the scopeofpractice.com is the primary site for all the stuff. And you can link to the podcast through that, but the, it's uh, thescopeofpractice.com. And uh, if you want to go straight to the podcast, it's thescopeofpractice.com slash podcast. Well, Brent Lazy, I wanted to thank you for coming on. It is the Scope of Practice blog, website, and podcast. And let me tell you, there are what, 10 or 15 episodes of the podcast out, and it is already a must-listen I highly suggest you check it out as well as the website. Brent Lacey, thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was fabulous. That's a wrap. One of the best parts about doing the Earn and Invest podcast is getting your feedback. And you can do this in many ways. One is to go to our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest and leave a message. Another is to go to the Earn and Invest website. That's earnandinvest.com and respond to one of the episodes or leave us a comment on the blog post or better yet, leave us a voicemail. You will find the button at the top of the page to the right where you can click and leave us a voicemail and tell us what you think. Another way is to leave us a review on Apple or Stitcher or however you're listening to this podcast. I'd like to read off a few of our recent reviews. The first was five stars by Run Boat Ride. Basically, Run said, getting hooked. I've listened to many financial podcasts. Doc G asks fantastic questions among a wide variety of guests and pushes back a little on traditional financial independence ideas. Thank you, Run. I agree. I try to think very deeply about the questions I ask I want to make sure I don't have just that run-of-the-mill conversation, but looking to have that next-level discussion of what's happening to people in their lives and with their finances. So thank you for that review. Another one from Rachel Richards, a five-star, one of my favorites, she says, so glad I stumbled upon this podcast. I really appreciate Doc having Mr. Money Mustache on in July to address his tweet and cancel culture. This is such a great platform, and I'm very appreciative of the host. Excellent guests and value add on every single episode. Highly recommended. Thank you, Rachel, for leaving this review. I definitely try to race towards whatever is happening in our community or in the world. So 
As opposed to shying away from the difficult questions, I would rather have guests on and talk about them. And that's why we did that episode with Mr. Money Mustache. Thank you for listening. Thank you for leaving your feedback. And now we will talk with John Stoy about the process of starting a podcast. On to the show. All right. Well, we are back here with John Stoy. He's a financial planner, a member of the Earn and Invest podcast Facebook group, and he has been on an episode before. And John wrote me the other day about starting a podcast. He had multiple questions, and I figured why not record our conversations so we all could talk together. I know there are a lot of people out there thinking about starting a podcast, so I thought this could be instructive. John, welcome back to the show. How are you? Thanks, Doc. Uh, I'm I'm well. I'm well in the in the at least as well as we all could be in the time of COVID. We're all dealing with it, but uh, but you got to press ahead, right? Yeah, these are strange times. We find ourselves indoors much more often, but maybe that's a reason to listen to more podcasts. Before we even get started, I know there are a lot of people out there who are questioning whether starting a podcast nowadays is even the thing to do. They say, "Well, there are a million podcasts out there." Will I even have an effect? Will I gain an audience? But I'll tell you right off, I don't think there can be enough podcasts. I mean, we have so many people out there with diverse interests and views. You could have a thousand podcasts about the topic you're interested in, and I still think you would find an audience. You are a financial planner. You want to start a podcast about retirement yeah, there are a lot of podcasts out there about retirement. On the other hand, I would never dissuade you from doing it because your audience is out there and it's a big enough pool of people that we all can be successful. Were you ever worried that maybe this is not the time to start a podcast or you should have done it years ago as opposed to now? Oh, gosh, always. Um, and I'm reminded of the, the, the old, that old saying, right? What, when the, when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? When's the second best time, right, today? It's funny. It, it, mirrors my entry into financial planning in that uh, people were telling me once I thought I wanted to go back to work, I had friends and old mentors tell me that I should go into financial planning. Um, but it just didn't, I had them tell it to me for years before I actually did, because I just, there was a little bit of, 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 of inertia involved. And there was a little bit of me not knowing exactly how I wanted to do it. Just knowing that I didn't want to do it like everybody else did, and and so bef until I figured it out, I waited. And and I have a little of that analysis paralysis, which is why I'm I'm trying with the podcast to to sort of at some point put a stake in the in the ground and and move towards it and and make a a launch date and hit it, uh, whether it's you know exactly what what I what I want in the end by then or not. So we'll see. What's holding you back? What do you think is your biggest impediment to starting today? what a lot of people, you know, struggle with, which is, you know, the, the whole imposter syndrome idea. Um, when I listen to, heck, when I listen to guests on your, on your show, when I listen to uh, Rick Ferry talk on the uh, interview people on Bogleheads, uh, I, I can't help but think that, well, I can't live up to that. The intro comes up to you know person x and they've written seven books and they've started three 34 companies and and blah 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 right uh that's not really, you know that's not me i i mean i have done in in my opinion some cool stuff but when i compare it against other folks like that it it, it sort of makes me feel a little uh, a little insecure but 
that's the part to get past and just say the heck with it and do it. You know what I think is really helpful with that is go out and find the worst quality podcast you can. And of course, we are not talking about earn and invest here, so don't get any ideas. <laughs> but find some really bad podcasts and listen to them for a while. And after seeing how badly some people do at this, it'll give you great confidence to say, I know at least I can do better than that. And it's the same thing like when you look at a retirement blog and you're reading through it and you're like, this person has no idea what they're talking about. It's the same thing. There are a lot of voices out there. And in fact, most of them are probably less educated when it comes to financial planning and retirement than you. On the other hand, they're out there telling their stories. So at least be assured that you probably have a lot more education than they do. And one of the great things about podcasting too is you learn as you go. So not only will you learn about the art of podcasting, but you'll probably learn a lot about retirement, whether you decide to have guests on or you research topics that you were good at, but maybe wanted to tighten your knowledge up a little bit. So you'll find that your knowledge base will actually expand as you do more of it. What do you think scares you most? Is there, so we talked about imposter syndrome. Is there anything technically about podcasting that really scares you? Um, well, I'm not sure that I would, I don't think I'd use the word scare, but I am a type of person. I like to have all my ducks in a row. I, I tend to, to want to jump ahead in terms of having the, the best technology instead of the technology that is good enough. Um, and I think, you know, at least I've, I've read this because I've been reading blogs on how to start a podcast, but it seems to me that a lot of the advice is, what you have is probably good enough start. Otherwise you won't get going. I think there are a few important things. One is the key biggest, most important ingredient to any podcast is you have to have a topic you're passionate about and want to speak about, right? That's first and foremost, because those first few episodes and maybe even the first few years can be rough. Not as many downloads as you want, maybe not as, as much interaction as you were hoping to get. So if you're not passionate about the topic, A, no one's going to like listening to you because it's going to be boring, and B, that drive is going to die quickly. So first and foremost, having a, a topic you're passionate about is number one, and it sounds like you have that. What you've been reading is true, the technical equipment you need to podcast is incredibly small and actually not that expensive, especially to get started with. So when it comes to sound quality, for instance, my microphone is an ATR 2100. It cost me $70. I bought it online. It connects right into my computer through the USB port and that's it. And that gives me pretty much the highest quality sound or are pretty close to it. And anything above and beyond this, you're really getting to very professional grade. And then you start talking about, well, what do I need to actually record? I use Zoom. Almost everyone knows how to use Zoom. You can use Skype. There are a million other services that people use. And those are especially good if you're interviewing people. If you're not interviewing anyone, you can actually use a bunch of apps that we use for editing. I use Audacity, which is a free editor. And you can record on Audacity too. So if you are doing a monologue podcast, you pretty much can get started with a $70 mic, a computer, and a free download of Audacity and probably 10 minutes worth of YouTube videos on how to use Audacity. And that's enough to begin. 
And so you won't have the most perfect, technically awesome podcast if that's all you have when you begin, but it won't be that far off. So it's pretty amazing how you can go from zero to definitely good enough, maybe not expert, but definitely good enough with very little. Tell me about what resources you've been using to study up before you get started. I imagine when I mentioned Audacity and I talked about the mic, those were things you had heard before. Yeah. Yes. So, so I watched a series of, uh, of uh, YouTube videos um, that Buzzsprout put out. I think there were maybe eight videos on how to launch a podcast. Um, and, and they were, to me, they were really helpful. That's that. And just essentially hitting the Google box and saying, <laughs> you know, how do, how do I start a podcast? Basically, uh, it's, it's been, it's been, it's been that one. Even the, um, uh, the choose five guys did a presentation, a webinar on how to choose, how to, how to do a podcast, um, which unfortunately I missed, but supposedly they're doing another one. So <laughs> I'll, I'll watch that one for sure. So already you could tell you need an idea you're passionate about. You probably need a decent microphone. You need a computer to connect to. You need to download something like Audacity and editor and learn how to use it. And then otherwise you need a host, right? You need a place to put your podcast, to house it and to store it. I use Libsyn. Uh, I do pay 10 to 15 bucks a month to store my information there. It also creates the feed, which I then distribute to places like Apple and Stitcher and uh, Spotify. But all of that is pretty simple once you get signed up. So that's yet another thing people don't think about. It's not perfectly intuitive. You do have to go in and play around with it a little bit. But I'm not technologically the best person in the world. Uh, but yet I have no problem maneuvering through Libsyn and figuring out how to get my podcast out there and uploaded and distributed. So it's not something that's incredibly difficult and anyone with reasonable YouTube skills or Google skills can figure that out. Have you already started looking at what platform you want to use? What host? Um, but I had, I think, uh, so, so Buzzsprout, which I mentioned, Libsyn was mentioned to me as well. Um, and then there was one more, maybe Blueberry. <laughs> however you pronounce that, uh, or they like to have it pronounced. I'm, I'm guessing there are more, but I don't like to, I don't, I feel like there's no point in looking at more. If a couple people that I, that I know and respect have recommended at least one or two of these places, that's enough to, to make a decision for me. I don't want to get bogged down even further by looking at six or eight of them for no reason. Yeah. I would say that, um, most people I know use Libsyn, not everyone, but a lot of people do. If you, the only reason really to stray away from a kind of big name like that is if you really want to go for a cheaper or a free option. So if you really search out, you can find some cheaper or free options. And that would be a reason to maybe go and move away from the bigger platforms like Libsyn. But otherwise, you might as well stick with what you know. Have you thought about how much it's going to cost you? Let's say you do this for years. How much it's going to cost you a year to run your own podcast? I haven't really. That's a good question. Um, as far as I could tell, in terms of the monthly cost for uh, like the hosting and whatnot, it seems to be pretty affordable. And definitely, I, I don't have a problem spending 25 bucks a month on something like that. I think I'll probably have to end up 
using or outsourcing eventually, maybe editing. And, but I also, I, I don't mind doing that either. Uh, I kind of don't expect it. To, I don't expect it to be free and I don't expect it to be a hobby per se. So it doesn't have to be free. What I, what I, what I, I want it to be good. And, uh, and so if I have to pay a dollar or two to, to, to make it a little bit better than I could make it myself in my garage, uh, then I'm okay with that. Yeah, after like the $70 cost for the mic, yeah, you should allocate about $15 probably a month for hosting. And then, of course, you have to decide, are you going to have your own blog page that supports the podcast? And, of course, then you might have to pay hosting fees for that. You might have to pay for the domain name. Are you going to have digital art, that kind of stuff. You might have to pay someone like a graphics designer if you're interested in that, but you don't necessarily have to. A lot of people don't. Editing is a big one. So you mentioned editing. It will be by far probably the thing you spend the most time on when it comes to your podcast if you self-edit. Editing an hour episode can take from, you know, an hour to five hours, depending on how specific you are and how clean you want it to sound. Yep. So it's one of those things that you have to decide. There are a lot of people who do minimal editing and therefore it does not take them very long. Some people, however, try to be more aggressive about it. Because I handle a lot of the, um, the parenting, uh, frankly, for, for our son, um, I anticipate uh, outsourcing editing because it's, it's, I don't have that extra time. I can create the extra time to do the podcast, I feel, but not that editing portion. Even though I also feel like I wouldn't mind doing it, it's uh, it's something that, that I can't, I don't think that I can do on my on my own just from a time standpoint. The only thing about editing I always say is it's worth doing it a few times so you understand how it works and you understand what's involved with it. But by far, if you're going to hire anything out, that is the thing to hire out. Editing costs can be anywhere from, you know, 40 to to $100 per episode for a 60-minute episode. So just remember, it will cost a little bit of money, but it will take a lot out of your hands and make your life much easier. So it's something to consider. So tell me what are your questions? What still is hanging out there is a worry as you move forward. Well, I think I think the biggest worry is that is the same thing that you say that 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 I that, that the things that I find interesting and that I find that I'm passionate about um, people aren't going to be quite as passionate about. So, I mean, I've gone through that in my head. It doesn't stop being a worry or a concern, but it the best way, um, and I think I might have seen it in one of these podcast videos or, or read about it on a, on a blog about financial advisors doing doing podcasts even, um, that, you know, the, the old school um, financial advisor idea of, um, which, of course, <laughs> I will say I would never do. And, and, it, and it, one of the things that kept me from wanting to get in the business in the first place, but the idea of inviting people for the, for the proverbial steak dinner and then trying to sell them something. but even if somebody, even if, if, a, if an advisor took something like that very seriously and prepared uh, a good presentation for, say, 30 people that, that took him up on the offer to, to do that steak dinner, he spent hours preparing and presented to only 30 people once. Whereas 
if I do a podcast and I'm going to spend time preparing, obviously, if I do it okay, that'll go out there. Even if a very small number of people initially listen to it, even if it's only a dozen or two, uh, it's an evergreen asset. And that's more people than probably I would have been able to get to, <laughs> to that steak dinner. The other thing about a podcast is, especially if there are serial episodes, is it gives the listeners a real chance to learn who you are, what's important to you, and what you have to offer. And it's really hard sometimes to get that across in a 30-minute or an hour, or even a two- or three-hour steak dinner. But when you have people who are recurrently coming back to listen to what you have to say, there's this level of trust that's built and I think that trust is important. It's a great way to market yourself. It's also a great way to grow and learn. And I suspect that you will enjoy doing it. So I'm looking forward to see what you produce. John Stoy, be ready for his podcast about retirement. It will be out sometime in the near future. John, thanks for coming on. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate it. I appreciate uh, your input. Yeah, it was good. And I, I like the conversation. I, you know, it's always hard for me because I, I love doing physician interviews, but I need to always make sure that they're generalizable. Um, but I love this idea of broadening yourself out and taking a step outside of that narrow focus of what you do and learning about other things. And I think that really is what your story is about. And so uh, I think it's a good story for my listeners. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Very cool. You're what almost... 10 episodes into the podcast? Uh, yeah, Monday will be, so I guess technically 10 because because uh, of my because of the Sunday special, but the weekly episodes, it's nine. Yeah. Very cool. How are you liking podcasting? I love it. It's so fun. It's yeah. so fun. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.